Hey friends, welcome back. Here we are, another week, another episode of our Bible study series. We're calling the Bible for Grown-Ups. We continue our study in the prophecy of Nehemiah from Hebrew Scripture. Tonight, the our discussion is discouragement. And one of the things that we certainly find is anytime that we are engaged working for something greater than ourselves, for work of the Lord, we'll find opposition from the world. And it can be discouraging when people outside of us, outside of our circles, give us opposition because, I mean, we want to be liked. We don't, we don't want to have dissension. So it can be discouraging. But there is nothing more discouraging than when we receive opposition from those who are supposed to be encouraging us, even, even ourselves. How do we overcome the discouragement that we know is going to come from the opposition that we know is going to come when we choose to do the work of the Lord? That's what we're going to talk about tonight, friend. See you on the other side. Uh, Nehemiah, still in chapter 4. Tonight we're going to be looking at verses uh, 7. It's actually, our subject's going to be 10 to 23, but we're going to just back up to seven, so we can get a running start into our verses tonight. So Nehemiah chapter four, uh, tonight we begin reading at seven through 23. Uh, and if you remember, we're still in the same portion of scripture as we la- had last week when we were looking at the enemy and the overcomer. And we recall, if you recall, we last week we talked about these individuals that were providing this external opposition to what Nehemiah and the people of God were trying to do for God. In particular, there were three enemies. There was um, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And then there was a whole other crowd of people that had gathered as, in an external sense to oppose the work of God and to try to thwart what Nehemiah was doing. And we looked, again, we looked particularly last week at the external opposition to Nehemiah's work. Uh, and, and we saw, just as a matter of course, right, that it is, it's just par, that if you want to do something for God, you are going to need to be prepared for external opposition. And what we're doing is we're looking tonight uh, at verses, like I said earlier, 10 to 23, which really, again, deals with the internal opposition here. So again, like I said, we're going to run and start. I'm going to read from 7. And go forward. We're going to read all the way to 23. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps of the walls of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us, Nehemiah is saying, us, into confusion. But we, Nehemiah and the people of God, prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Here's where we'll actually begin the subject text tonight. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired, and there is so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build back the wall by ourselves. Meanwhile, our enemies are saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. The Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us, Nehemiah says, The Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again they will come from all directions and attack us. 
So Nehemiah continues, I placed armored guards behind the lowest part of the wall in the exposed area. I stationed people to stand guard by family, armed with swords, spears, and bows. Then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord, who is great and glorious, and fight. Fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to work on the wall. But from then on, only half my men worked, while the other half stood guard with spears and shields, bows and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. The laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and one hand holding a weapon. All of the builders had a sword belted to their side. The trumpeter stayed with me to sound the alarm. Then I explained to the nobles and the officials and all the people, the work is very spread out. We are widely separated from each other along the wall. When you hear the blast of the trumpet, run to wherever it's sounding. Then our God will fight for us. We worked early and late from sunrise to sunset, and half the men were always on guard. I also told everyone living outside of the walls to stay in Jerusalem. That way, they and their servants could help with guard duty at night work during the day. During this time, Nehemiah says, none of us, not I, nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor the guards who were with me, ever took off their clothes. We carried our weapons with us at all times, even when we went for water. And we'll end our reading this evening right there. Title of our discussion tonight, Discouraged. Charles Swindoll the author who wrote a very good book on the subject of Nehemiah called Hand Me Another Brick wrote these words about discouragement. Chuck says, what a difficult disease to cure. I don't know of anything that will take the wind out of your sails quite so quickly as discouragement. Rare is the person who can resist it. Read that again. What a difficult disease to cure. I don't know of anything that will take the wind out of your sails quite so quickly as discouragement. Rare is the person who can resist it. Now last week we looked at verses 1 to 9 at the external opposition, opposition that was from the outside. Now we're looking this evening at verses 10 to 23 at opposition from within. Now if you remember from the very beginning of our study of Nehemiah, we recall that Nehemiah comes to us in the story has it, having been the cupbearer, right? In other words, in the royal household, close proximity to King Artaxerxes of the Persians. He had asked the king that he would be able to send him to his own hometown of Jerusalem, which had been burnt down and derelict, and there he should be allowed to build it, rebuild it. Not only did he ask permission of the king, but he also asked for resources that he might be able to do these things. And the king gladly gave him all that was necessary, uh, even though, even asking the king for something like this. If the king was displeased with the request, obviously could have had Nehemiah just put to death without any value to his life. So Nehemiah, though, ends up going to Jerusalem with all the resources he needs, and we remind we remember that we followed Nehemiah as he prayerfully 
surveyed the ruins as he thought and meditated before God as we should do what, what he should do. And it wasn't long until he had an army of workers all around the city that had a heart and a will to do work. They really wanted to rebuild the city of God. But so often, as it is in the work of the Lord, immediately following a time of blessing, it is very, very common for us in which the enemy will come with a counterattack. The enemy keeps coming and coming again and again and again to discourage the work of the Lord. Now, the opposition that we looked at in the first half of Chapter 4 here was the opposite uh, opposition of Sanballat and Tobiah and Jeshim and a number of their friends. And if you recall from last week, we found that even some common enemies united together to come into the opposition of the work of the Lord. But up until now, Nehemiah and the people have been able to keep the opposition at bay. They were able in some way to successfully deal with it. In their facing of the enemies and the overcomers. Why? Because the people had a mind to work. And they had a heart to pray. And we saw that they had an eye to watch. And eventually, they overcame. But this evening, we're going to see something that's even more fatal than the opposition that was external. That opposition that comes from Sanballat and Tobiah and Jeshem. For everyone who is engaged in the work of the Lord will face two foes. They will most assuredly face an external foe, and they will face an internal foe. Let me remind you of the words of the Psalms, psalmist David in Psalm 41, where he says, Yea, my own familiar friend in whom I trust, which ate of my bread, has lifted up his hand against me. This is a tactic that our spiritual enemy loves to follow even unto this very present day. Not only does the spiritual enemy bring opposition externally from the world, right, and from the enemies religiously and spiritually that we have in the world, but he also has a knack of bringing opposition to us from within. You might recall that he did it even amongst the uh, disciples, right, with Judas Iscariot. In Acts chapter 5 and 6, the very beginning of the life of the church, or what would end up becoming those church, those early believers, he used um, Ananias and uh, Sapphira, these professing Christians who ended up bringing contamination into the church. It's an internal opposition to the threatening to thwart the work of God. Now, what I want us to see here in this passage today in verse uh, 10, right? Just the very beginning of those words, then the people of Judah began to complain. Up to this point, we've had the Ammonites and the Ashdodites and the Arabians, and we've got Sambalot, and we've got Tobiah, and we've got Jeshua. But now in, now in verse 10, we, you can almost miss it. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired. And there's so much rubble to be moved. We'll never be able to build the wall ourselves. Judah, Nehemiah's own people, starting now to rise in opposition as to maybe believing that maybe that rubbish <clears throat> should just stay there like it always has been. Maybe why there shouldn't be a building built for the glory of God. Now, we're not told what Nehemiah felt like whenever he heard that complaining. 
But I imagine that he would have had a sickening sense of being let down. He must have been overwhelmed by feelings of betrayal. There he was trying to help the people of God. And at first, and at first they were all around him. But all of a sudden they'd give it in to the jibes of the enemy and they, they wanted to put down their tools and just give up. How persistent the spiritual enemy is, friends. There's no doubt about it. Because we, we, uh, we read about it ten times. Verse 12, Nehemiah 4. Verse 12, the Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. Other translations, I'm using the NIV tonight, other translations actually say not many times, but they actually give a number. They say 10 times the people of Judah came back to the great commander Nehemiah and said, no matter where you go, these people are going to follow us and harass us. We might as well give up. They felt strongly enough in their discouragement to bring their complaint before Nehemiah ten times. Now anyone who's done the work of the Lord will know what it is to be discouraged. And I believe our common spiritual enemy loves to discourage God's servants. And I believe he loves to discourage them by these Little wrinkles that ends up causing the vine to spoil. What I'm talking about is, is constant, persistent returning again, the needling, the coming back again and again and again, right? It wears us down. Doesn't matter what work we do, sometimes we'll get discouraged, and often that discouragement. Does it come from our spiritual enemy in an external sense? Does it, it sometimes are the source of our discouragement? Does it come from the world? It doesn't come from temptation. But sometimes it comes from those who ought to be encouraging you. One of the things that facilitated the rise of the Nazis in, into power in Germany during World War II was a propaganda called the Big Lie. It was simply this. If you told a big enough lie enough times, people would eventually start to believe it. That's exactly what happened in Nazi Germany, later spreading across the whole of Europe. And one of the lies that they told the people, right, was that, that Jewish people were many rungs down the ladder than from other Caucasian white human beings. And people started, I mean, even intelligent scientists even theologians started to believe the lie because it was a big one and it was told often enough. If you're in the work of the Lord, whatever capacity you may be in, if people come again and again and again and again and discourage you, often it rubs off. Let me turn you to turn to a character in the Bible who's discouraged. Jack chapter. <laughs> Acts chapter 7. It's actually going to be speaking about the character Moses. Acts chapter 7, beginning with verse 23. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing, and you remember, by, by murdering 
the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. In other words, the very people that should have appreciated what Moses were doing, the very people, we'll see in a moment, who threw it right into his face. Verse 25. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. They did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. Two Israelites this time fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Man, you're brothers, right? You're two Hebrews. Like me. Why do you want to hurt each other? The man who's mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you did that Egyptian yesterday? Now, watch what happens with his accusation in verse 29. When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Now, Moses could enter into this fight between an Egyptian and an Israelite. He could end up slaying the Egyptian and burying him. He could... He could have the forthrightness to get into an argument between two Hebrews. Right? Now, I'm not talking about the morality of it all. I'm not talking about the morality of it all in this. I'm just pointing out the fact that Moses was man enough to do all of these other things. Have this fight with the Egyptian, kill him and bury him. Interrupt two of his brother Israelites that are in a fight. Right? But when they just simply threw an accusation to him, an internal source discouraging him when they should have been encouraging, what does Moses, this great man of faith, do? He fled. How easy it is for us to give up when discouragement comes. How easy would it have been for Nehemiah to just say, you know what, I have had enough of this mess and walk back to Persia and go back to being the cupbearer for the king. There's so many people in the work of God who actually end up doing this. Quitting and just going, you can, you can keep the ball, I'm going home. Right? And I could actually understand why they do it. Alan Redpath, another guy that we've been talking about throughout this series, wrote another book on Nehemiah. And he said these words, and I think they're very profound. Listen to them, please. What a powerful weapon is this which the enemy thrusts into our souls, this internal discouragement. The cream of the army threatens desertion when the prayer partners have become discouraged, when the fellow missionary threatens to return home because it's just been too tough of a station, when those who be sharing the burdens most deeply with the Nehemiahs of our time have no vision at all, how disheartening it is. When those who should be right in the thick of the fight, in real prayer warfare, men and women without any vision, without any burden. They'll do the same job and carry on the same work as they've done for years, but they never really seem to be capable of hard travail. Those who be prayer partners think the task is just far too much to handle and say, we just can't do it. I'm trying to echo a cry that's perhaps in your heart today in the work that you're doing for the Lord, or maybe even in your own everyday, you know, work at home or work in the office, wherever that is, right? If there's something that cries out from your heart, I just can't do it anymore. 
I'm overwhelmed. It's just gotten too much for me. And you just want to walk away. You just want to run away from it all. Then we can look to the character Nehemiah as a source of encouragement. Because Nehemiah doesn't have the word retreat in his vocabulary. So let me show you three things. Three things that were sources of Nehemiah's discouragement. And then quickly a few things that were the secret of his encouragement. The origins and the answers to being discouraged. Here's the first source of the people's discouragement. Nehemiah 4, verse 10. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired of them so much. Rubble to be moved. Right? Here's the first thing. The cause of their discouragement, their strength was depleted. Now I'm talking about, in this sense, literally, their physical strength. So the first problem that these people encountered, the first source of their discouragement, right, is that they were depleted. It was not a spiritual problem, a physical problem. If we could put it in words that we might, you know, say today, they would burn out. They couldn't do God's work anymore. Not just from a spiritual perspective, from a physical one. The actual word here uh, in Hebrew means stumbling or tottering. It means as if staggering with a load on your back. Okay? You'd almost see them drained. So physically, they couldn't even carry the bricks anymore. And they were falling down, stumbling over the load. But please to see this distinction that I'm about to make. They were so busy building the walls of the city to protect the city, they forgot to build their own walls to protect themselves. Remember that we've been talking about? They were exhausted physically from doing the work of the Lord. In the, let me give another illustration the song, in Hebrew Scripture. In the Song of Songs, in the first chapter, verse 6, we meet the Shumanite woman, the Shunammite woman. We read that her father's children, her mother's sons, actually, were angry with her, and they sent the whole family out to the vineyard to tend it under the auspices of King Solomon. But she, in particular, had the responsibility of being working in the fields every day, the vineyard every day. Chapter 1 and 6, when the shepherd king stands beside her, we read that she says, Look not upon me, for I am black or dark. And that blackness, that darkness... We're not, we're not talking about ethnicity here, actually. That's not what we're talking about. Actually, we're talking about a darkness that come from the Mediterranean sun that was beating down on her every single day that she was out in the vineyard working. She was so busy doing the work of the vineyard for her brothers and for King Solomon that she hadn't even time to look after herself. And she actually says that. Mine own vineyard have I not kept. Now, my own physical appearance... I've lost. Should be a lesson for all of us. We're not talking here about spiritual strength, physical strength. Sometimes you could start out doing a work for the Lord in a strong way, but you can't finish it because you've worn yourself out. You've become too tired. Whatever the capacity of the work that we're doing for the Lord, right? Whenever you get saved, you know, you don't have to become a Superman or a Wonder Woman for God. You're still physical flesh and blood that needs sleep and needs food, needs all sorts of rest, even even recreation at times. But equally, we also must remember that as servants of God individually, 
right? We, we don't have to be supermen either. No individual, whether they're a pastor or a missionary or an elder or a Sunday school teacher or the young people's leader, no person ought to shoulder the burden physically of all of the work of God. That's why the Lord's ideal is a body of believers whom collectively share the load of the work. Now, the first cause, a source of discouragement, often is a depletion of physical strength. You're not getting enough sleep, right? Maybe this is definitely applicable. You're not getting enough exercise. Remember, uh, the Old, Pro- Old Testament prophet Elijah ran a supernatural run beside a chariot. Actually, outrun a chariot. And the very next scene that we have in that story, we see him under a juniper tree, dejected and exhausted and depressed. And what do we see God do? God gives him a meal, gives him some time to sleep. God tells his prophet to rest. Right? If you're discouraged today, could it be something as simply as you're just trying to do physically too much? Even in the name of the Lord. But you haven't kept your own vineyard. Hey, listen, if you've made it this far, first of all, thanks for making it this far. I hope that you're enjoying it. I hope you'll enjoy this second half. But I'd just like to take one second just to ask if you could do me a favor. If you are enjoying the semi-seminarian, if you like what we're doing here, if you could, if you could like us, whatever platform, if you're on Spotify or Apple or Stitcher or whatever your platform is, if you could like us and follow us, And if you have the opportunity to maybe give us a review, like on Apple Podcasts, we would certainly really appreciate it. That really helps get the Bible study message out to to more people because of the algorithm stuff. I don't really understand it all, but I've been told it helps. So if you could help me, I would certainly appreciate it. Listen, not going to take up any more of your time. We're going to go right back to our story. Secondly, Their strength was depleted. We also see that their vision had disappeared. Verse 10, there's just too much rubbish. There's too much rubble to be moved. We'll never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Meanwhile, our enemies are saying, before they even know what's happening, we'll swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. Verse 11, the people are starting to believe it. They're starting to believe that possibly, right, their enemies might do this. That their enemies would come up behind them. But more importantly at all, they didn't have a vision for their work of God. Instead of being encouraged by all that had just happened that we've been reading about, all the building that had already been done, the only thing that they could see was the huge task in front of them. At this point in the game, they couldn't even imagine it being completed. All they could see was this big mound of rubble and an angry army coming from behind them. Now, we know from chapter 4, verse 6, that they were about halfway. So built, we built the wall, and the wall was joined together um, unto half thereof. For the people had had a mind to work. That's verse 6. So they were at the halfway stage. Building the walls. The task. 
before them was halfway done. And perhaps we could say that the halfway task of anything, especially the work of the Lord, and I hope you'll hear me out, sometimes might be the hardest part of the work at all. Let me give you an illustration. If you've ever been hiking, right, since climbing a mountain or whatever, you'll know that you could take a compass or maybe even a map that you can't really read that well, and you set off in a particular direction, and you see the horizon on which you believe is your destination. Right? And you walk and you walk and you walk and you puff and you sweat and you start to sit down at every opportunity you can that comes along. You look at your watch and then all of a sudden you realize that you're only at the halfway point. You haven't realized though that that's the halfway point from where you originally thought you were going. That that horizon that you could see was only the halfway point. But when you get there, what more do you see? You see you've got another five peaks to go. Right? The equation in our human brain seems to work, maybe at least for me, right? is not, oh, I'm halfway done. It's, oh, I've got to do all of that over again. That's how maybe you, right? And that can be a source of discouragement. Sometimes when we're doing the work of the Lord, sometimes our vision can disappear when we realize that we're only halfway there. And we don't particularly see all that we have done. But rather, we focus on all that is yet to be done. It's the tough, it can be the toughest point of all. Because it's at that point where our initial enthusiasm that we had for the work of the Lord begins to kind of peter out. Right? You could see this a lot of times in the early days of the conversion of people that have come to experience Christ, you know, right on, early on in their conversion. You'll see people that are really fired up for God. They want to do everything for God, right? And then over time, just have a danger of having a sense of losing that vision. Life happens, disappointment happens, discouragement rubs off, sets in. Sometimes we can be halfway through and you just give up. The third thing I'd like to point out about discouragement, their, their discouragement tonight, uh, the truth is, is that their confidence was also deflated. The strength was depleted. Their vision was gone. Their confidence was dis- depl- de- deflated. Verse 10, they feared the enemy. They had exhausted their physical reserves. Their vision had deflated. And so has their confidence gone now. Once we read that they had a mind to do the work, remember that's in verse 6, the Hebrew literally says they have a heart to work, but their heart had been buried under all of this rubble. They lost the heart for their work. Their motivation was gone. And in its place was this overwhelming sense of defeat, even fear. Now, these are the sources of discouragement. I'd like to offer Nehemiah's visions of encouragement with the remaining time that we have together. If you're here uh, this evening and you've ever had your strength depleted or maybe your vision has disappeared, maybe your confidence has deflated, here are, some, here are four things I think very quickly I think uh, that you can grab hold of. In 1 Samuel chapter 30 verse 6 we read of David, King David, right? The 
that one city was taken over, a city by the name of Ziklag, by the enemy. And the army that David had, many of their children and their wives, Ziklag, had been taken captive. And all of a sudden, when the fighting began to affect the men's lives, they turned to David and they are going to stone him, right? Once things got a little bit tough for David's army, David's army says, you know what? Maybe we need to stone old David. And all of a sudden, right, the, the, everything turns on David. And we read 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. David is greatly distressed with his predicament. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. That should be a lesson for each and every one of us. Because I also want us to see the greatness of Nehemiah here. For he not only encouraged himself in the Lord, but he also encouraged the people of God. He went a step further. How did he encourage them? First, source of encouragement, gave them all a common goal. Verse 13, when Nehemiah looked, he saw that the families had actually become broken up. One part of the same family was on one side of the wall, and the other was on the far end, and they were broken up, right? And he, could, he could see that their work had become scattered. And it had become counterproductive because the further they were Apart as family units, right, they couldn't come back together as a family. So what Nehemiah does here is he reorganizes the work. He teams up the people into the same families, into the same neighborhoods, around one common goal. Now one of the reasons we get discouraged in the work of God is because the church, remember we're talking about this from the Christian perspective, right? The church, whether locally or globally, is split up. How many churches in Cushing are there? Over 40. Over 40 churches in our little town. Think of, think of the split between Christians, between the body of believers around the world. Right? Sometimes it, you, could, you could kind of get a feel, or at least maybe, I don't think you'd want to make the argument, but I think you could make the argument. Sometimes it seems like Christians are dead set in working against each other rather than working together. Even on the local level, right? Uh, you, can, you can call what you could say is a competitiveness to the extent that all you want is the bigger church, the more successful VPS program, the best pastor in the pulpit, right? Simply out of human competitiveness. We read in verse 20, that Nehemiah also created a rallying point for the army of Judah. A trumpeter always by his side. Verse 18 says that whenever there was trouble, Nehemiah would get his trumpeter to blow the trumpet. And he, Nehemiah, the commander, would rally the troops around him for one common united goal. Again, I think that there is a lesson here for us today. Because the family of God... Again, being locally or globally is broken into its various scattered pieces. And it is counterproductive for our rallying cry, which is the gospel, right? The good news about Jesus Christ ultimately should be our trumpeting call, right? But we're all split up all the time, preaching different things in different ways. Right? Rather, than, uh, rather than rallying around our true commander, the, art, the artist and the 
author and the uh, perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, and fight Jesus' battle. Because it's not our battle, it's his. A common goal. Do we have a common goal? Do we have a common goal to see the work of Jesus built up? To see people saved, converted. I don't mean joining the church. I mean transformed by Christ. Do we have that common goal above all other desires, whatever they might be? Well, that's one encouragement if there is one. Because if we all worked towards that common goal, I believe much of our discouragement in the work of Jesus Christ would disappear. Secondly, they had a common goal. They also had a unified focus. Then as I looked over the situation, I called the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious. And fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. It says Nehemiah looked up. Now when Nehemiah looked up to survey the rubble and the rubbish and the debris that was all around, it goes on to say he didn't just focus on the rubbish, but rather he lifted his eyes heavenward, as it were, And encourage people not to focus on the dereliction that was around them. Not to focus on the enemy. Because if they did that, then there would be no progress at all. But rather, to look to God. How we must look to the Lord. If we're going to guard against our discouragement. Right? If you look to other Christians as the source of your encouragement, you are going to eventually be discouraged if you look to other things in the church if you look to other things in the church world if you look to other things in the world for your encouragement you will eventually become discouraged but if you look to the lord like the psalmist david did in 41 he he encouraged himself in the lord that's what nehemiah does that's what johannes Jehoshaphat, the king of, of, uh, of Judah, encouraged people to do in 2 Chronicles in 20. For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us, the king says. We don't know what to do. But our eyes, God, are on you. And isn't that supposed to be the point? I wonder in the service of God in our lives, have we taken our eyes off the Lord? Are we looking up or are we looking at the problems around us? It's very easy to do, right? Look, Peter chose to look at the wind and the waves and took his eyes off of Jesus. And what happened? He began to sink. Maybe we should turn our eyes back to Jesus again. Right? The common goal, the work of the gospel, our great commander Right? Something we need to, a unified focus. Looking towards the Lord Jesus Christ, not looking at others. Thirdly, right, we're almost done. Thirdly, we need a balanced approach. Verse 15 and 17. Imagine there were some of them who wanted to do all the fighting. Then there are others who just wanted to do the building. Right? Maybe they were the scaredy cats. Maybe they were the engineers. But there were some who were bloodthirsty. And there were some who were cowards. There were some who were industrious. And there were some who were probably volcanoes, right? Someone just spoiling for a fight. 
Now, Nehemiah is coming to them, and he's saying, there's got to be a balance here. We've got to take it in turns. Everybody's got to take a role and a responsibility that I give them. There is a balance to continuing the work of the Lord. You've got to be prepared to fight the sword in one hand, the trowel, and build in the other. And there are a lot of unbalanced Christians around today. You will meet Christians who all they want to do is fight. Right? Not just with each other, but even maybe for some cause that they believe in. They want to defend this or that. And it just seems to drive them. It just seems to keep them going. Now don't misunderstand. We do need people who fight for truth. There is absolutely no doubt about that, right? But I worry about folks whom it seems like all of their Christian existence seems to be just fighting for or defending a cause. Because it seems like they're always pulling down rather than building up. Then there are people who are always working and they never seem to get a rest for their family or their friends. Right? If they're not fighters, they're workers. Fighters are always doing something bad, generally speaking. Workers are always seeming to do something good, but one defeats the other. Alan Redpath, the author of this book on Nehemiah, says, If our spiritual enemy gets Christian people involved in controversy at the expense of capturing souls for Christ, then he has secured a master stroke. Men and women spend their lives in so-called defense of truth, defense of position, and neglect the main task of building. They fight over hair-splitting matters of doctrine while their souls are perishing. We need to be very careful, especially in this fellowship, of doing just that. Being a balanced Christian, of making things, we have to be careful, of making things that are less important more important. Right? at the risk of turning everything into the all-important, and it all just turns into one big fight. Fourthly, and perhaps even though it's the last one, it's the most challenging, it needs to be an others-oriented occupation. First, we need a common goal. We want encouragement. We no longer be discouraged. Okay, Nehemiah shows us that we can focus on a common goal, with a unified focus, a balanced approach, and it needs to be an others-oriented occupation. Nehemiah encourages them. Chapter 4, verses 19 to 22. Then I explained to the nobles and officials and all the people, the work is very spread out. And we are widely separated from each other along the wall. When you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to wherever it's sounding. Then our God will fight for us. We worked early and late from sunrise to sunset. And half the men were always on guard. I also told everyone living outside the walls to stay in Jerusalem. That way, they and their servants could help with guard duty at night and work during the day. The thing that Nehemiah was encouraging to do was to rally around each other. Because God is fighting for you. And because God is fighting for you, you can be encouraged. By remembering, by trusting that you're never fighting alone. Now listen, whenever you're discouraged, often what you want is the support 
of another Christian. And we've been talking about if we have a role to play, right? You want somebody to support you. But let me challenge you tonight and let me challenge you to think of it this way. Often, what people really need when they need to be encouraged is not the support of another, but to be a support to another. Why? Because when you're thinking of someone else, something else, or doing something else apart from your worries and your stresses and your strains, doesn't it seem to lift the load off by not thinking about and bearing the burdens of others rather than bearing the burdens of ourselves? We're really essentially selfish people when we get down to it. We are really, seriously, we are really selfish people deep down in our hearts. So we should have a diagnostic question as to whether we are other-oriented people. What are you going to do in the week that lies still ahead of you to help others? What have you planned? Will your week be spent serving others? Or is it wrapped up only in yourself? Could that be the reason why you discouraged I'd have to say that self-centered people are often discouraged because they always let themselves down. They're always looking internally and what others are doing to them externally. Are you overwhelmed by the task before you, whether it's the work of God, whether it's not? Right? And some, it's a very involved and demanding job. Some even have life-threatening jobs. Some have difficult people to work with. For some people, it's that their tasks seem endless, right? Whether you're just a mother changing diapers or a managing director moving companies, whether you're a minister of the gospel or a missionary on the field, you can let the work get to you to such an extent that you end up discouraging yourself. You're pulled down into the muck and the mire, which cannot be described, and you easily can seem to lose your whole strength, your whole vision. And all of your confidence just because of the trash and the rubbish that you see gathered around you. Can I encourage you as I close to do four things? Get a common goal. Like the Apostle Paul says, he says this, this one thing I do. This one thing I do. And if all else fails, this one thing I will do. I'm going to do this. And what is it? the gospel of Jesus Christ. Get a unified focus. Don't just look to the Christians around you that, that let you down and let others down. Look to Jesus. He'll never let you down. He'll always fight for you. Get a balanced approach. Don't be an issue Christian. Stands on a soapbox. Doesn't want to talk about anything else, especially love, but that particular thing. Be balanced. And remember... Remember, there are souls that are dying. Lastly, fourthly, serve others. Because I think that's the greatest antidote that we can have. And I think the greatest source of encouragement we find here so far in Nehemiah is an others-oriented occupation. The easiest way to get rid of our discouragement is to forget about ourselves and serve others. Let's pray. 
Our Father, help us not to be ignorant of our spiritual enemy's devices. Help us not to be unaware of the origins of discouragement, which at times can come very close internally. Father, we just pray that we will always avail ourselves by the Holy Spirit of those encouragements that are open to us. Let's always look towards Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let us rally around his cry to the gospel. Let us unite with those who preach his word and let us win the lost, our Father, and let us serve others and forget our own gripes and problems. Lord, we all need to be encouraging one another. And if we were none of us, we would never... We would, never need, we would never be discouraged. So help us all, Father, to love one another. And so fulfill your truth in the Savior's name. Amen. Amen. Any questions? Go. Well, what do you think? Am I right about this thought that the best way for us to take discouragement off of our problems is to stop focusing on ourselves and deciding to focus on others is the true antidote to discouragement an others focused occupation I think that it is I think that the moment that we can take the focus off of ourselves and put it on something greater than ourselves we find a power that does not exist on our own. And that's not only important, it's fundamental to a successful spiritual life. The thing that we're all, at least what we say, that we're striving for, an intimacy, a closeness with God. But to get close to God, we we are going to have to learn take our eyes off of ourselves. Something we learned from the prophecy of Nehemiah, and I hope that we can apply it to our lives. Friend, until next week, I hope that you're blessed, and I hope that you're well.